Hey y'all, welcome back to the Decolonized Christian Podcast, where we dismantle harmful theology and reimagine the Christian witness together. This week's episode, we are going to read the Bible with Trey Ferguson, and I'm going to turn it over to Greg so you can learn a little bit about who Trey is on paper, and then I'm going to welcome Trey into the space. All right, so Trey was born in Brooklyn, New York, and raised in Richmond, Virginia, and he currently lives in Homestead, Florida, in Miami-Dade County, and there is where he serves as an elder and the director of discipleship at the Refuge Church. His passions include building community, digital engagement, Black church history, and the University of Miami Hurricanes. He is a graduate of the Samuel Dewey Proctor School of Theology at Virginia Union University. And Trey says that his best feature is actually his wife, Jessica. When he's not theologizing, he enjoys roasting people on Twitter and maybe landing himself in hot water with his church's elders. Trey, welcome to the pod, my brother. Thank you. It's it's an honor to be here. Thank thank y'all for yes. having me. This is I don't take that for granted thank at you. all. Thank you. All right, Trey, here we go. We are going to read the Bible with you today. Uh, so first off, how and when was the Bible first introduced to you? In how church. In church, yeah. That's the, that's the simple answer, the short answer. Because um, no, I, I uh, share the testimony of a lot of Black people of my generation and that we grew up in and around the church. My mother loves telling the story of how she brought me to church. I was born on a Wednesday and she brought me to church that Sunday. I was four years old the first time I entered the doors of the Emmanuel Baptist Church in Brooklyn, New York. And uh, that was where I grew up, like one of them kids in church two, three times a week and all that stuff. And as is the case in much of the black church tradition, the Bible is pretty central to everything that we do. Like before I knew what the word evangelical meant or what any of those distinctives were, like I knew that the Bible was supposed to be central to this faith walk. Or I, I was taught um, that the Bible was central to this to this faith walk of mine. And I was in all the little Bible quiz competitions. I got the trophies all up on my mom table to this day somewhere I mean because I, I was a beast with it too like you know when I was looking forward to my little memory verse usually in the new international version because the King James won't slap and write in my my six seven eight year old tongue at the time mm-hmm. um, and that's that's when I first came in contact with the Bible I don't know if that's the most relevant mm-hmm. or uh the most formative in the sense of where I find myself today but that is uh, when and where I was first introduced to the Bible and these scriptures. Yeah. Now, when when you reflect back on when you entered the doors of that church and y- you you were introduced to this book, um this book that um God has some role in, right? Um how has your understanding of scripture kind of changed now that you've gone through seminary as you think back of man when I was 4 days old, I was sitting in this church. Um what what's that process been like for you? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think the biggest agent, the biggest catalyst, the driver of that process has been my eyes opening to the humanity of the scriptures. If that's making any sense, learning to see the human fingerprints that went into the scriptures, learning to see what things were being responded to in the scriptures what, what what was the catalyst in there and seeing central themes pop out right like coming out of the black church tradition of course the exodus story is is central in there because in a lot of cases black people the descendants of of enslaved africans would see themselves in the story of a people that god freed from the chains of slavery in africa at that Right. Like we would uh, see ourselves in that story. So understanding the Exodus was one thing. But then as I got older and started to learn more about the reality of exile and occupation and the roles those play in shaping the Hebrew scriptures that we now have, and then seeing that the entirety of the New Testament, the Greek scriptures, were written under a time of Roman occupation, like 100% of those. 
And seeing that all of these scriptures are written in response to or upon reflection of the perception of God's intervening hand on behalf of an oppressed people Mm -hmm. or on behalf of a people under duress. And interestingly enough, often, depending on who you ask exclusively, sociopolitical duress. Right. Like the world was not bifurcated into like church and state religion and, and temporal matters. And they were closely intertwined, um, one and the same in some things, in some cases. So uh, learning to see the humanity and the real fears and stressors that played a role in shaping these scriptures really helped change my relationship in a really major and I would say beneficial way. Mm -hmm. I'm much more in love with the stories and the narratives, even the genealogies I appreciate in a new way when I see what they were in response to and finding a common thread with our history and where we find ourselves now. That is a new thing that I didn't necessarily appreciate when uh, the Bible was kind of flattened into a couple of stories about a garden and then an arc, and then a cross. Mm. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Trey, I love where you you frame it as the humanity of the Bible. Um, th- thinking about just the grittiness of of the scriptures uh, of this piece of literature that is people's lived experiences with God. Right. I think, I think you're spot on. Uh, I think a lot of, we just like hear the stories like, Oh, that's a cool story. But in reality, a a real life emotion, right. Narrative, uh, a real look in, into culture and and human relationships. Right. I, I immediately think about Jesus doing ministry. I'm like, People were pissed off at some of the things that he was doing, and, and we spoke right before we uh, hit record, um, and we we're just talking about how sometimes you just need to say a thing and let that thing be said and not feel uh, and shame or, or doubt um, or even concerned about the pushback that you may receive, um, because there will always be somebody that is willfully <laughs> uh, able to critique your voice, right? And so I love how you you, you hit upon the scriptures being uh, ha- having that human element, right? Like I said, it's people's yes. lived experiences with God, and that's so fruitful. And I think that's why we can see ourselves in this piece of literature in the scriptures is because they're like, oh, I kind of have that tendency, like so and so. That's really interesting how they went about being in relationship, right? Um, and so. Because of that framework, do you um, have a favorite passage or Bible story that you've learned from or kind of constructed like, wow, God, you opened up my eyes in a whole new way through this narrative or or story? For some reason, the first chapter of John, right, mm-hmm. like the prologue to the to John's gospel always resonates with me in a different way. And as I'll gotten older and studied well i say i say like i'm old for real i'm not that old not as i've gotten older (laughs) as i've sat in more classrooms or or whatever have you and gained a fuller picture of all of the influences that go into shaping scripture cultural influences philosophical influence of like greek philosophy and stuff pouring in on top of second temple judaism and all of those different factors that go in there when I read the words that we often translate that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and go through that whole situation right there, understanding the concept of the word, this Greek concept as, as, as divine reasoning, that which exists apart from us and drives through us it says that in the beginning that already existed and it was with God and it was God. And it's almost this mystical explanation that precedes the gospel of john's introduction to the person of jesus Mm -hmm. right because then it goes on after explaining like this concept of the logos the word um that that was with god and it was god it goes on to say and i think chapter i mean verse 14 of the first chapter i think it's when it says uh that the word became flesh and dwelt among us right like that word that we translate as as became flesh is 
um, the picture of pitching a tent, tabernacling. It's, it's mm. a re recollection of uh, the, the the Hebrew stories of the, the tabernacle being pitched in the wilderness and following the people. It says the word, like that divine reason, became flesh and pitched its tent. It dwelt among us. It became a part of our community, right? And when I think about like all of those things, Greek philosophy, the history of the Hebrew people and this story in the wilderness, this person of Jesus all converging into this one passage to paint this picture, to mm -hmm. put together this, this poem of what the author of this gospel is trying to communicate about Jesus of Nazareth. It always resonates with me because then I recognize that the Bible is not only scripture or a record or, or a recording of, of events with uh, whoever's bias is put in, but it's also art. Mm -hmm. Like these people put a lot of emotional energy into crafting something that would resonate for a very long time. It's not an accident that we're still reading these things. Um, so when you say, like, is there a passage, man, John chapter one always captivates me with its beauty and also its complexity. Mm -hmm. Just now when you mentioned that you refer to scripture as art, that makes me think about how the Bible itself is, like, it's, a, it's an anthology of, of books. It's a collection of books. Yeah. It's a library, library. exactly. Yeah. And I've, I've even heard people refer to it as such, as a library. And I think about it, sometimes I think about it as outside of its sacredness and the sacred power that it holds, just simply appreciating it, appreciating it as a work of literature and how we can pull from it even just as that. And when you think about how the, it's separated into genre and how that affects our how we read certain books as well, to me, it makes it more robust and it makes it come more alive for me personally when i sit with how i can pull something from this text whether it's whether it's to be taken literally or not there's still something here that i can pull and apply to my life now yeah i think you're absolutely right about that I'm not sure if y'all y'all probably heard the the backronym, right? Uh Bible B I B L E basic instructions before leaving earth. Very familiar. Yep. And, yeah, that comes <laughs> up. And I'm at the place where, where I understand it's, it's it's cute for our kids and stuff, but it aggravates me now where I'm at. Because when we are mining the Bible for instructions and rules to list out, I think we miss so much of what is going on. It would be not the equivalent, but but like if you were to go through Harry Potter and pick out all the spells just so you could practice with a ma magic wand, you would miss all the other dope stuff going on in those books, you know? Like if you don't appreciate things for the totality of what they are. If you can't read one of Paul's letters and see the fascinating way that he repurposes scriptures from, from the Hebrew Bible, right? Because he's taking a lot of, of license and <laughs> in, in how yep. we interpret scriptures that happens and, and all of the, the New Testament authors are doing that, even in the Gospels, when they'll point to a scripture from one of the minor prophets and say that, oh, Jesus was the fulfillment of this. Or even in, in Isaiah, like, oh, that's not what they were talking about at all. But they were fully cognizant of that. I think a lot of times we come with our own expectations of, no, this is what they had to admit. And that's not really how any of this stuff works. Um, so when we act as if God, literally used a divine hand and pinned out all of these things and we remove the human agency and how things were composed and we remove the artistic prowess, right? Mm -hmm. And the prophetic inkling of the authors and the communities that compose these scriptures. I think we rob ourselves of an opportunity to see what communities were forced to respond to when they gathered these things. All right. Um, Trey, I want to backtrack for yeah. a second because I heard you mean, heard you mention Second Temple Judaism briefly earlier, and then you just said that your a passage that resonates with you is the the first chapter of John, and so I want to ask you right. how do you what how do you think 
we should or how do you personally read um, the Gospels, especially, you know, given that that's our only depiction of Jesus' ministry in the Bible, how do you read that? Do you read that in the context of Second Temple Judaism? Um, and if so, what does that mean for your application of those specific books, those Gospels? Because there, there's a there's a lot of debate with scholars around the Gospels and you know what Jesus might not have actually said or whatever the case may be. But how do you how do you read those books? I think reading the Gospels within the context of what we know about Second Temple Judaism is a worthy endeavor that, if I'm being honest, a lot of people with Bibles don't have the resources to, to undertake right away, at least. Oh, and, and with the internet, like it's a lot easier to do that stuff. So I don't want to give people that easy out. But when you recognize that Jesus was a very, very intentionally and dedicated Jewish man operating within a Jewish context and that all of his disciples were discipled into a way of Judaism that ought to perk up your ears, your antennas a little bit to the fact that if you are not a Jewish person, what you are witnessing is an in-house discussion, yeah. right? Like it is, it is a conversation amongst a people with very clear boundaries at the time. And some of that stuff, we not going to be all the way privy to unless we humble ourselves um, and, and are willing to, to set aside some of our cultural mores and presuppositions to understand what were the boundaries that define the context that this stuff was written. The failure to do that is one of the reasons that Christianity is so susceptible to anti-Semitism, mm -hmm. right? And I say that this is this is in part easier for me to understand as a black man because there are lots of things that I would say in the presence of black people that should somebody who was not black hear and repeat, you gonna sound out of pocket. Mm -hmm. And I'm not just talking about dropping the N word. If I'm talking in in uh amongst my community and i'm like hey we got to do something about like some of the violence we see all right um and then somebody who's not part of my community is like yeah that community is going wild with violence like yo you need to mind your business and clean your streets up because right now you picking on us and you ain't got your stuff right. together yet right so when we understand within the context of second temple judaism and understand that a lot of this was people trying to figure out the best use the best um application of not only the scriptures but their tradition mm -hmm. and all of these other things and what that looked like and how that was best embodied and you add in the fact of roman occupation and you look at what life under that level of scrutiny might be like um that kind of changes some of the dynamics and some of the 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 enmity and and the, the fighting that we see happening in the scriptures. Now, if you strip all of that context away, things become oh, these are the good guys and these are the bad guys, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. I don't know is really the purpose of the gospels. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it kind of flattens the story when we remove them from the context. You understand? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, that's so good because. Christian nationalism, Western thought would teach us um, this is what it means and that's it. And we move on and we teach that thing and we don't community well. Right. We, we don't. And we don't know how to, like, I, I love using this because Greg loves pulling this out of his pocket every now and then um, saying Jesus wasn't a Christian. And let me tell you, he has folks twisted upside down. They lose their minds on Twitter. They're like, what do you mean Jesus is not Christian? Jesus is the head of Christianity. But Jesus is not Christian. And uh, us as Western-influenced Christians, if you want to use that term, we don't community well. So it is hard as hell to start to, to decolonize that in us, to say, yeah. I, I don't need to focus on who's the good guy, who's the bad guy, who's more righteous, who's unrighteous who's more faithful who's unfaithful in this story and just let 
the let the story and let the community sit and just listen. I'm convinced right. we don't listen to the story. We listen to interpret then to talk. And right. that frustrates right. me. That's huge. Not only is Jesus not a Christian, the only times we see the word Christian appear in the Bible is, is not really in a positive context. It's, it's in, it'll often tell you, or in one, pa- in one place it straight up tells you that it was used as an insult or that it was have like, oh, you think you can make Little me a Christ. Christian that quickly? Right. Yeah. Um, and, and so when we look at that, like the designation of Christian, I understand its use in today's society, but a lot of times we say that word uncritically and we don't think about mm-hmm. the fact that not like, okay, the, Christianity is our attempt to to live in the way of mm-hmm. Jesus. However, comma, over the past couple millennia, we have seen that there are countless ways of doing that. So one of my little uh, ditties, one of my little jingles here is that there there is no Christianity. There are Christianities. Mm. Right. And there is something that vaguely resembles an orthodoxy or central tenets, but even some of those, like, it's a little fuzzy around the edges and what that looks like. And especially here in the Western world, most of our faith is informed by the Roman Catholic tradition. Even if you're a Protestant, that was in express response to the Roman Catholic tradition, which mm-hmm. ignores the reality of Christianity in uh, the Eastern Orthodox world, <laughs> the, the formerly the formerly Greek Empire, and ignores uh, Coptic Christianity, like the oldest continuous Christ- Christian language. So there, there's very real differences in that. And in each and every one of those traditions, there are different expressions of how we do community and how we sit with text and all of those things. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that our faith likes to do out here in the West, is we like to have tidy answers. Like you said, this is what this means. And then we move on. We're not all the way comfortable with sitting in disagreement, right? Like it wasn't until the past couple of years in my, in my big old age that I was comfortable looking at a scripture and saying, I don't like that. I don't like what I don't like what transpired there. I don't like this. I, I'm I'm not even sure if I agree with what God did here. And and understanding that I worship a God who is big enough to handle that. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> you understand? Right. Like I worship a God who blessed the one who wrestled with him by giving him a promise of of a nation and fruitfulness. Mm-hmm. So I'm not afraid of going to the wrestling mat with God anymore because the Bible I read says that there is the opportunity, the potential for blessing in mm-hmm. that effort. Yeah, right. it's yeah, it's like we seek safety over just being in God's presence, right? Right. I, I see- seek safety because, you know, for, for me to question God, that must mean I'm not saved anymore or some garbage mm-hmm. like that. But I love me, only s- that picturing of you willfully being like, God, let's chop this up. Exactly. Because not only do we seek safety, we seek I knew you were going to say that. Which, I, I, knew, I knew you were right. going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> we in the spirit right now. We in the spirit right there. Oh, can I do? But, but certainty, which is a is an understandable and desirable goal, right? Like I'm, I'm an analytical guy. I, I like to be a couple moves ahead of people. I read people and, and I don't like being surprised. We like certainty, but in so many ways, certainty is actually the enemy of faith, right? Like when we already know all of the answers and all of the outcomes, what are we really relying mm-hmm. on God for? Mm-hmm. And there are times when our quest for certainty and answers instead of community and wrestling has robbed us of the opportunity to become disciples. Um, A disciple is one who follows. And the only time you need to follow somebody is if you don't know where you're going. I I think that that, that's that's really good, Trey, because I I was talking to another guest recently, um, Casey Overton. We had her on recently. Oh yeah, snap! That's the whole. Yeah. Oh, Casey oh, was here just just yesterday, oh. actually, and um, just yesterday. I can't believe I got to follow <laughs> that up. Put, drop this one first. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, she brought the fire for real. But yeah, that's why you got to drop this one okay, first. I don't know how, I'm sorry, Casey. But yeah, um, hey, leave that in there. <laughs> Let her know. Let her know that, that I, I got to beat you to the presses because you're not going to have me out here looking raggedy, Casey. <laughs> that, what was I saying? I forgot what I was going to say. 
my bad, my bad. You 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 had another guest on here. You had another guest, Casey Overton, and y'all was talking about something real dope. I already know it, it was about to come out, but oh, you see, man. you said you said Greg, uh, Greg, Greg. You said Trey. That's really good because we had another guest on Casey and y'all. I forgot what I was going to say, but okay. Anyway, I think I think where I was going. What were we talking about before that? about pursuing certainty and how that robs us of the opportunity to become better disciples. Um, Trey, think, Trey said in our hashtag certainty is the enemy of faith. Yes. Yes. Trey Ferguson. Um, I think. Well, so one thing I was going to ask you, I, I do, I agree. I, I, I totally agree that um, faith, certainty in, in faith kind of, don't co- they don't co-align and just a quick nod to Dr. Angela Parker, who um, in her book, she talks about, she says this very thing and it's in all caps, but she says, faith is not certainty. And I think we have to be willing to just sit with that. And I remember what I was going to say. Thank you, Lord. So, um, oh yeah, like that. so Jewish people, I, I think we can learn. I think Christians can learn from Jewish people yes. because as I understand it, there, and it, I think even Jesus modeled this in, in his in his time when, as the gospels depicted, where he was in community with his with his people of the same who shared his faith, and they were working towards how how can we mobilize, how can we move this to become better, how can we become more progressive, and it's something that Christians have we struggled with some of us it's a really big thing for it to look like a monolith and there's this thing around gatekeeping orthodoxy and things being above critique but as i as i say all the time on twitter nothing and no one is above critique so we have to get to a place where we're comfortable sitting in the tension and i think that's just what we 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 enjoy doing that here as a decolonized christian we enjoy sitting in the tension because that is room for God to move. That is room for us to exist with each other and to work with each other and to live and coexist in community. Um, which is why sometimes I don't mind. I mean, I have I have friends who are much more conservative than me, but I still enjoy being around them and I appreciate them because it's room for dialogue. And I think when we look at the Bible more as a conversation starter, it opens the door to much more fruitful relationships and community with people. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. And I think that's one of the reasons that I don't know or care how much biblical studies I come in contact with, whatever. I can't get to the point in my ministry where the Bible no longer has a place because you you refer to it as a conversation starter. The Bible is one of those things around which these communities have been constructed, right? And community has always been essential to the Bible because this one of them lines is going to cost me a couple of speaking engagements or whatever, but scripture is only scripture because of community, right? Like if... God sits there and pins something. It's not acknowledged as being from the hand of God until enough people say it is, right? Um, it is an inherently communal thing. Mm-hmm. Now, what we do with that once it enters community will define the shape and context of that community. So whether or not we sit there and uphold this as the literal spoken word of God or whether we communicate this as the record of God's activity or whether we communicate this as somebody's fantasy that would define what that community looks like. But this remains a part of our community. Even if you have the the worst relationship in the world with the Bible and you can't stand it and it's nothing but traumatic for you. Some of us got cousins in our family that we don't want. We don't talk about Bruno, you know, (laughs) one of of them situations, but that's still family. It, It is what it is. So how we handle that, is going to vary from community to community. What that relationship is like is going to vary from community to community. But so long as I identify as one who endeavors to follow the way of Jesus, 
the book by which I I came to know of this Jesus will remain a part of that community. It, it will always have a seat or a place on, on the table, if yeah. what I'm saying is making sense right now. Yeah, I like that. I love um, when you're talking about what passage of scripture inspires you and you point to to John 1. For me, it's John 21, 25, where you know, Jesus did many more things than this. And if we recorded everything, there's not enough books in the world. That makes me really curious as to what more Jesus desired to do on this earth before his community said, enough is enough. You finna die. Um, <laughs> like, I just, I'm, I'm naturally curious about that. So with that framework I got question, um, in mind, great. Okay. Trey. Yep. Trey, so how do you read John 14 and 6? Word. Oh, you okay? So you're gonna drop the address, and I'm supposed to know so exactly what it says. Word for word. Saying is, <laughs> I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one comes to the Father me. except yeah. me. Yeah, that's that's uh, that is a real life question, and um, one thing in particular has uh, oh, 2008 when President Barack Obama was running for president of the United States of America. A clip of his pastor at the time. The Reverend yeah, I, mean, I remember Jeremiah it well. Light, yes. Yeah, so that, there was a whole dust up over a sermon that had um, some white people in a pinch. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and part of the aftermath of that, uh, Dr. Jeremiah Wright had hosted a symposium where he explained the prophetic tradition of the historical black church and how they've always handled scriptures and applied things. And then at the end, he opens it up for a question and answer. And somebody asked him um, that exact same question, like, okay, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. Do you believe that Muslims can get into heaven or whatever? And his response was, Jesus also said that other sheep have I who are not of this fold. And that resonated with me because if you look at the context, Jesus appears to be talking about, as he does throughout the Gospels, the lost children mm -hmm. of Israel. But Dr. Jeremiah Wright handled that scripture in much the way, uh, much the, uh, a very similar way to how a New Testament author would have done it. And when you think about the gospel, and one of the reasons why it, by very nature, cannot and will not be upheld as authoritative or even valid by many of um, our Jewish neighbors, it's an ever expanding thing. It's about tearing walls down, right? Like in Acts chapter two, Pentecost is the 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 overcoming of barriers, linguistic barriers. So we can all speak in the same language. There's this ever folding and expanding uh, uh, kingdom of God. It's like this mustard seed that starts real small but becomes the the largest thing. So when Jesus says that I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. The Father being the God of Israel, the God of Israel that I as a Gentile have only come to know about through the person and work of Jesus Christ we have to wonder them right and the gospel of john also being the most uh poetic or artistic of the gospels the least synoptic the one where the, the author is clearly taking the most liberties and telling and crafting the story no one comes to the father except through me there are some elements or some hints of universalism in in this gospel story in general and i have to wonder was Jesus talking about being baptized into him and saying the sinner's prayer and, and coming to church and tithing when he says that scripture? Or is he talking about a way of embodying the love of God? Like this, this is the only way that you will see the father is by living your life this way. Um, And the scary thing about it is either way you answer that question, a great deal of the people who profess themselves to be Christian have not come to know the father. 
because <laughs> our Christianities, many of them, um, ignore the very testimony of who Jesus was mm. and who he stood for and how he lived his life, right? Um, and so I, I think of people like Martin Luther King Jr. who said that the greatest Christian that he had met, or one of the greatest Christians he ever met, was Gandhi. <laughs> Somebody who did not profess to be a Christian because of the way he lived and, and the life he embodied. So that's something that I hold in tension um, because I am a Christian, a professing Christian who is often frustrated by a lot of professing Christians out here acting like they done lost their minds, you know? Um, so I'm like, okay, no one comes to the father except through me. Are we talking about Christianity? I don't think that's possible because as we've already noted, Jesus was not a Christian. Or is it about the way that you live your life? Is it because Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen yeah. the father and that mm -hmm. Jesus is our entry point to the God of Israel. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I am the way, the truth and the life. <laughs> no one comes to the father except through me. Right. I, 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 I appreciate that you hold that intention because I've been in conversations with people who um, have done and said some harmful things to me as a black person as in relation to that that particular verse um because we because of the exclusivist readings that, uh, that come out of that verse so very often and i right now i'm thinking about something my dad told me recently which was that you know he said god is bigger than christianity and i completely and totally agree with that I, 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 yeah, you know, because if you like you just said, if you sit and think about Jesus and who he was, was Jesus inviting us? Was was he inviting those people into another religion? It kind of seems odd that he would have done that by him being a Jewish person himself and him and his entire ministry being to people that were like him in their Judaism. Right. Um, so I think we have to interrogate. I love interrogating stuff too. I think we have to interrogate how we have traditionally read these, these passages that lend themselves toward exclusion rather than inclusion. Um, yeah, go ahead. I think you're absolutely right about that. And one of the things that I mentioned earlier about this being an in-house conversation, if you look at some of the different trains of thought that were going on in Second Temple Judaism and, okay, how is this... Sarah, like how how is this best embodied among us? Jesus says, like, no, this is this is how you do it. Like, why watch me? And that's the answer, right? Like, that's an in-house discussion. But one of the things that happens is when Christian becomes Christianity becomes the religion of empire, it necessarily has to be exclusivist. Like it it, it it has to be like, no, this is the only way. Because if we allow for any plurality or any yeah. tension or whatever, it is no longer a vehicle for control for restraint, for ordering new ways of yes. being. And it's one of the never ending temptations of Christianity is to use it as a vehicle for colonization. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so when you talk about uh, the, the, the decolonized Christian podcast where we are right now, that, that has to be an ongoing process because particularly how we, when we talk about the great commission, um, some words that do not appear in the Bible, by the way, like that, that is commentary. We, we see it labeled as the great commission. That's not there, but go and make disciples of all nations, uh, teaching them, baptizing them in the name of the father, the son, and the Holy spirit. Like that is how, how do you make a disciple? Is it by dunking people in water, saying a prayer and moving on? Or does it, is it about joining in community with them? Is it, is it about, um, finding a new way of being like those are real questions, but when Christianity becomes a tool of empire um, and the means by which we make imperial myths, then all of a sudden, like, no, this is our higher charge, making disciples um, and, and catechizing them in this exact way of, of being Christian and whatnot. Like, that is a never ending temptation, even even mm -hmm. for, for, for me, even 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 for us, people who would like to see ourselves as decolonized. There's 
a never ending temptation. So like, no, this is the way that this is best done. And if you are not this way, then you are inauthentic in, in your Christianity. Right. Mm-hmm. So, which is ironic in that uh, one of the reasons that we are Christians and not members of the Jewish faith is that the man, the Jewish people have much more clearly defined boundaries for who's in and who's out. Like they, they do. And Christianity by design did not have those boundaries. <laughs> like it, it doesn't. So when we put those boundaries in place, we see things splintering off. That's why we got more denominations than we got people. <laughs> it's, it's, it's how it happens because no, we cannot allow this level of tension or, or disagreement to coexist because then we don't know how to make disciples. So we're going to make disciples this way and not that way. Uh, and it's, it's, it's always a temptation that's there for yeah. us and something to be wary of, yeah. you know? Yeah. And that's a great segue into a, a question uh, that Greg and I have wrestled with and are continuing to wrestle with and dive deeper into, and that is, is the Bible the Word of God to you? And, is the Bible the Word of God? And I'd like to also add, this is something that Casey said yesterday. Um, if you choose to not think of it in a binary, that's fine as well. Um, but the, as the question stands, if, do you believe that the Bible is the Word of God? And if if so, in what way? And if not, then why do you feel that way? Yeah, the Bible is the word of God. And I say that as one who acknowledges that there are no recordings of God's voice. We do not have any autographs of God's handwriting. There, there can be no analysis to see if the original manuscripts match the handwriting. We can't do any of that. But the Bible is the word about God. <laughs> it is. It is. Uh, so earlier we talked about B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before for leaving me. earth. Right. Um, <laughs> I, I did. I, I recently pushed out a newsletter talking about that and I, and I flipped it. It's not um, basic instructions before leaving earth. It's books inspired by life's experiences. Right. Um, and so in the sense that the Bible is this collection of people across millennia and how they have perceived God at work in their life, both good and bad. I'm sitting there working through the book of Ezekiel right now and how it's all doom and gloom. Like, no, this things are not looking good and it is because we have been unfaithful and God is responding in this way, right? They're all words of God. <laughs> like we're talking about, okay, this is how the creator of heaven and earth is responding to our situation. This creator of heaven and earth has seen our misery in chains and slavery and is moving and he, and, 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 and moved on our behalf to free us from that oppression. And because we responded unfaithfully, this creator of heaven and earth became angry and left us to our own devices. But because this creator of heaven and earth was faithful, there was always a promise of a redeemer, one who would redeem us, whether that is a king who sits on the throne, whether as uh, the New Testament authors would insist this person is Jesus of Nazareth, this uh, traveling itinerant preacher slash carpenter. Like that is the, the embodiment of God. All of these are words of people responding to the reality of their situation and how the God who created the head of who created the heavens and the earth is responding to and addressing their very situation. So when you ask me, is the Bible the word of God? Yes. In the very same way that if and when my children tell my story, it'll be the word of of, of, of daddy. It's going to be the word of Trey Ferguson, uh, regardless of whether or not it's all of those are, are recordings of words I said, because their perception of how some of these events went, it's going to be a little bit different than mine. And that's going to be okay. Because at the very same time, they are my children and they do know the truth about me. Even if I see that truth differently, um, it's, it's, it's still real. And you're going to learn something about me because they sat with yeah, me. Yeah, so b- based upon what you just said about how you see the Bible as the word of God, when you think about the, I guess, the more traditional way, the whole inerrancy and infallibility, do you feel like <laughs> that how you 
see the Bible as the word of God, do you feel like that kind of brushes up against the traditional understanding of this is the Bible is the word of God is, is the, the, the only words of God are the words in this, in this book, this anthology of books. Yeah, what I said definitely brushes up against that is uh, brushes up against that, especially because often I don't I struggle to see or to assess how helpful the whole concept and definition of inerrancy is right. Like when we say that there are no errors in the words in their original manuscript, first and foremost, we don't have the original manuscript. That's not a, yeah. that's not a thing like. It's it's a concept that you've constructed to make this definition work, because we say, oh, the Bible is without error. We can look at some of these manuscripts and be like, well, this doesn't even say the same thing. Well, in the originals, it was right. Well, we don't have those. So which one are you counting as the original? And all of that boils down to our need for certainty, right? (laughs) Um, All of that was like, no, this is what it was, as opposed to us continuing in the tradition of the biblical authors and letting some things sit in tension. Why do we have four different gospels telling the same stories about Mm -hmm. Jesus? If not for the fact that we might have slightly different recollections about the same. If you ask all three of my children how something went down, you're probably going to hear a different version of that thing. So I don't necessarily know that the very like concept of inerrancy is good food for my faith. It is great food for my certainty, which I can then pitch to other people as a reason for the authenticity and authority of my leanings and preferences. But it's number one, not how the Bible typically behaves itself. And number two, it's not really helping me grow in faith. Yeah. Um, yeah. If. <laughs> you understand? I mean, the, yeah. the only thing it's, it, it is helping me growing is faith that there is an original manuscript in existence. Or so I don't, I don't even know. Yeah, yeah, it's a crazy attempt to understand and re-mean our life experiences based on what the Bible has quote said and how we interpret it. And oh, you know, I was five minutes late getting into work today. Well, that that was probably just God slowing me down to really think. No, fool, that was traffic. And so yeah. I think about like how we try to add context to how we're feeling, what we're going through, as if God designed the Bible in a way for us to track every little moment of our lives to make sense according to, quote, and I hate saying this this way, Greg, quote, his word. I'm going to use very masculine language for God. his okay. word, right? It's like, it's not, that, that's not what it is. And when we start doing that, then we pull verses out of context and oh what is this means lost. this yeah what's not lost on me is the very idea of inerrancy as we often understand it based upon like the chicago statement on yes. biblical inerrancy or whatever um is a very political statement right like it, it, it is in response to what was perceived as a liberal drift and a reinforcing of what the bible is and many of the people around the table for that conversation are the theological descendants of people who use the Bible to defend slavery, chattel slavery in the United States of America. Um, some of their descendants, people who pin that statement, are currently spilling ink all over the place about the inherent uh, submission. They won't they won't call it inferior, inferiority, but the inherent differences between women and men and the need of women to submit to men in perpetuity, right? So that the idea of inerrancy is not like some biblical concept that, that we receive. It is a political concept. And I don't mean political in the sense of like Democrat and Republican. I mean in the sense of the assigning of power and whose interpretation do we hold as most authoritative in this area? That's that's good. Thank you. Thank you for that trade. Because I, I think it's a perfect segue into the next question, which kind of expounds on what I just asked you, which is if we say that the Bible is the word of God, what does that mean in in the earth? What does that mean? What are the implications of me saying that the Bible is the word of God? And you can just connect it to how you can you can you can talk about it and how you see the Bible as the word of God and how 
it's been traditionally given to us is this is the word of God. What is what do both of those things mean for people in the world? Yeah. So traditionally, a lot of times if it's presented and enforced and accepted as the word of God, what that means is this is the final. There is no questioning this. And that is something that out of necessity, I wholeheartedly reject. Because if that is the case, then I have to sit with God's either acceptance of or condoning or even promotion of things like chattel slavery. And we've seen ink spilled over things like, uh, oh, well, slavery was different in that sense. And and if you read it like, nah, man, that's this is slavery is is in there. It's, and there's lots of rules about it. And the God I serve, I can't accept that being God's plan. Uh and, and and you call that call that cherry picking or whatever if you want, but that that's is what it's gotta be for me. Mm-hmm. You know? And if if that's an issue for you and all of a sudden like, oh well, you are following your heart and not God or whatever, like if, if my rejection of the idea that humans should be enslaving one another is what then fine. I'm I'm a heretic, call me right. what you want. I'm I'm willing to die on that one. Mm-hmm. Uh but if we accept the word of God as how communities have structured structured themselves around God's interaction, oh, God's activity, God's interaction, God's activity on and in their midst, then it becomes okay. How do we respond to this word? Because there is always a choice, and we can say, "Oh, we choose to." listen to God's word, but okay, if everything in there is the word of God, what do you do with something like Proverbs 26, 4 or 5, uh, the two verses right back to back that directly contradict each other. Don't answer a fool according to his folly, uh, lest you become just like them. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest they become wise in their own estimation. Really, that's an exercise in wisdom. How do I navigate this particular situation? And if I view God's word as an invitation to wisdom, we now have something to work with, as opposed to God's word being an invitation to mindless activity and and, and rote motions and a restriction of my freedom. That's problematic. And that's what we see a lot of times through history. That's why we see a lot of the most grotesque things in the history of the world being committed by professed Christians. Mm -hmm. Because if God's word is this, then I can use it to sanction any number of Mm -hmm. horrible deeds. I can construct a biblical argument for just about anything. I'm, I'm, I'm nice like that. But if God's word calls me to love and wisdom, now the onus is on me to how I respond. And because my entry way and my introduction to the God of Israel is through the person of Jesus Christ by the finished work of Jesus Christ on Calvary, my charge then becomes how does love look in this situation? That's good. Mm-hmm. And love and love can't look like domination. Love cannot look like enslaving love cannot look like this and so there are certain stories that i cannot accept as prescriptive because my introduction to the god of israel is not through what was normal in the ancient near east (laughs) in the iron age my introduction is this life that i live based on where god placed me and my relationship with jesus of nazareth does that answer the question? I does. It, it does. It does. Um, and you actually tweeted something that I, that I told you we were going to talk about. And I was going through my DM trying to find it. And you said that people like to use the Bible to beat the holy imagination out of us. Ooh. And I was in a conversation with some friends of mine who are pastoral residents. And um, we got to talking about the Hebrew Bible. And some of the stories in there, we were talking about, uh, I think it's Elisha and the she-bear. And we were talking about um, just uh, some of the genocide in the in the Hebrew Bible as well. And um, 
you know, I was I was fired up because I feel like certain people, you know, I'm not gonna say any names, but people who see the Bible a certain way don't like to sit in the tension. They like to have the tidy answers that don't really make sense. And my my comment was our imagination is not big enough. And I don't think that our I don't think that how we see God is is big enough. Because I think that a, a, a devotional, I reading a devotional all day, and it, one of the lines said, a God that we can comprehend is no God at all. And it's, it resonated with me so deeply because I think that so often when we try to make God fit in a box, we end up creating more and more issues rather than if we would just let God be God, whatever that means. Whatever that means for us to say, let God be God. But I think our it goes back to imagination. Because if our imagination is, is bigger, then God is limitless. I don't have to try to make God say something or do something that the human author said that God did. If I don't believe that to be the character in the heart of God. You see what I'm saying? So like, what does, how do you, what tell me about that tweet? Like, what? Do, how do people? Yeah. How do they get get us to a place to where they want to use this multivocal anthology of books to strip us of our imagination? Yeah, a lot of it is rooted in uh, cessationism, where with the closing of the canyon, uh, God. It's no longer active among us because we have everything we need in here, which is a silly idea, um, in my opinion. In my opinion, it's a silly idea and one of those ideas that is necessitated by uh, restricting Christianity to make it an agent of empire, right? But if you look at what Christianity is in terms of following Jesus and how Jesus says this is about a kingdom that is coming, indeed it is already among you and the kingdom is inside of you and you need to be reborn, what does rebirth mean if not the ability to see things in new ways? Right. That's what being born in the spirit means, that I'm no longer restricted to seeing things uh, as I've seen them. But now I can see things for what they truly are. That's what revelation is. It's the unveiling, the apocalypse is when things around us are revealed in truth and we can see them brand new. And when we look at the Bible as, okay, this is settled. It is what it is. If it's not in this book, it ain't happening. X, Y, Z. We've then restricted the imagination that Jesus endows us with with the advent of the holy spirit and the indwelling of the holy spirit right i should be able to sit around and dream of better possibilities and by faith walk towards that i should be able to do all of that uh, the same reason that when they asked jesus about divorce he was like yeah that's that's in the scripture i ain't gonna lie to you but the reason that moses said that was because of your hard hearts and that's not the way it's supposed to be. So I understand that our very scriptures allowed that, but I'm telling you that it ought not be so. And we ought to work on our hearts to the end and that's not even a desire for us. And we can work towards this end instead. So if as a Christian, you do not feel free to sit down and dream of the best possibilities imaginable, right? Like literally imagine as in creating an image of and then praying, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I don't know if you see the tattoo is right here on earth as it is in heaven right here on my forearm, because that is that is my motto. Like I've I seen it. I think um, I can't remember. I think it was Richard Wesley who said um, someone was like, if Jesus had a political slogan, what would it be? And it was on earth as it is in heaven. That is dependent upon us sitting in quiet contemplation even maybe getting your eastern christian on and sitting in silent meditation what is heaven what does eternity look like what is that and where do we move in order to draw that down into our reality yeah and we lose a lot of that if our faith is just a matter of memorizing scriptures and and clobbering people with certain mm. passages mm-hmm that's so good. I think about if it's just about knowing the right answers to this test we call life, then what is the point of the Imago Dei? 
right? What what's the point of being in made, being made in God's image and, and, and being handcrafted, right, if you will, and set apart for for a purpose, um, and never being able to fully walk that out with God in community? It just it doesn't make any sense. I just call it a theology that speaks against it. It it, it, it when when we look at it, the Bible from the very traditional perspective, it tends to talk over and against it without it even realizing that it's doing so. Yeah, I think it's important that we know, you say when you look at the Bible from the traditional perspective, we got to look at which tradition, because what happens here is in America, like this is a, a, a very, very loud, and I don't even want to call them a minority because there's, there's a lot of them, but that's not the only way there is to be, right? Like right. The, the way that that a mainline uh, uh, Episcopalian will hold the scriptures is very different than somebody in the Southern Baptist Convention. Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm that. That's more the tradition I'm thinking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, and we got to be careful one. about that because a lot of times we be giving people like license to just like, no, this is the way it is. Like, no, that's the way y'all are. Yeah, and y'all, some of y'all are delib- in the same denomination that was literally founded to protect the institution of chattel slavery. I'm not obligated to submit to Absolutely. your tradition. I don't right. have to do that. I don't have to be that way. You know. Right. You wanted me to go with? Sorry, my bad. So, sure. so Trey, yeah. how do you, or how, how do you think we, as people of faith, can read the Bible in its world for our world? Um, what can we glean from the Bible to move us forward as a people? today and where we are right now. Yeah, that's dope. So earlier I mentioned um, reading the Bible as an invitation to wisdom. And at the same time, <laughs> they, they, they say in the old church, our holiness is still right. Right. What What does that look like? I think sometimes we struggle with holiness being filed down to the concept of piety right? yeah we absolutely do that. <laughs> um, or some right and sometimes we'll use the word righteous right which when you look at how the bible uses the word righteous is almost always synonymous with the idea of justice so righteous isn't just a matter of me being pious and doing all of my rituals the right way righteousness is the means by which we set things right it's a matter of doing the right thing and so when we read the bible not only as an exercise in wisdom how do we govern ourselves in xyz situation or whatever but when we look at it as an exercise in righteousness meaning justice setting things right between people then we get to take on the challenge of constructing better ways of being, not only with people who identify as fellow Christians, but for our neighbors all around the world, right? And then questions become not not so much, oh, what would God have us do in this situation? Even though ultimately that, that, that's the goal. It's not like, oh, what did God say? The question then becomes, okay, how do I set things right between my neighbor and me so that we can stand before God without distraction? So that we can stand before God without enmity? So that we can stand before God without the guilt of whatever hierarchical structures inhibit our neighbors from living in the fullness of their humanity, which was created with the very image of God in it. Because so long as I am not standing in right relationship with my neighbor, I have denigrated the image that God cast them in. There's a reason that Cain's blood, I'm sorry, that that that, that Abel's blood cried out from the ground <laughs> it's because like no god god says i, I made that deliberately like th- th- what have you yeah. done and the bible invites us to answer that question what have you done to you to your brother to you to your sister to your neighbor whatever so when we read that i think 
the questions need to stop being so much along the lines of uh, is 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 being gay a sin? Like we gotta move beyond that, right? We gotta move to a point where okay, how can I stop constructing a living hell for people just because I disagree with them on that's good X Y Z point? Oh yes, and 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 that's how we gotta start engaging with this because. If you look at the Bible, there's all sorts of times where by all accounts, somebody was dead wrong and then somebody responds to them being dead wrong. And eventually God steps in and is like, no, like you're doing too much right now. <laughs> because very rarely, there's a couple of instances like in maybe in the story of Job or whatever, very rarely is God interacting one-on-one with the person. We get distracted a lot of times when we talk about being saved and have you accepted Jesus as your personal savior and everything like that, which is dope. We need to get there and spend our personal time with God, but God is in the people business. Um, <laughs> these people are broken. Their, their, their society is, is often what grieves God. He talks about the patterns that they have embodied and enshrined within their culture. So we got to start looking at the Bible as an invitation to exercise wisdom in setting things right with all of the people around us who share the image of God. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's good. I I love your perspective on not only who God is, but what God is inviting us into by, by way of these, this piece of art, that that we hold to to be informative and sacred and transformative for the sake of ourselves and our our uh, neighbors and so Trey I, I realize we we talked um, a lot at you with these questions so do you have any questions for us as we wrap up our time together? Uh, when we gonna do this again, man? No, I'm not. all right. Part part two coming uh, next week. We can. Uh... There you go. <laughs> nah, man, the people don't heard enough of me right here. Um, no, and if I'm... you haven't heard enough of me, y'all can find me elsewhere. Three Black Men, The New Living Translation. I'm everywhere. You ain't never there. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, Trey, we thank you so much for what God is doing in and through your life and through your community. Um, clearly, God has uh, called you forth in community to shed wisdom on the, the working and the, the deep humanity um, that we all uh, have built in us because of who God is and who God has called us to be. So thank you so much for joining us here on the Decolonized Christian Podcast. And remember that decolonization doesn't happen in a day. Peace, y'all.